0: You are listening to the Unusually Well-Informed Podcast.
1: Welcome to the Unusually Well-Informed Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Hampton. My unusually well-informed guest today is Dr. Jennifer Pierce. Jennifer is a corporate design consultant and user experience researcher who helps artists and businesses brainstorm, empathize, ideate, prototype, and test. Today, Jennifer Jennifer and I are discussing how user experience research is done and how it impacts the products and services we use. Jennifer, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks so much for having me, Tim.
1: It's my pleasure. Jennifer, you won awards as a theater maker and ethnographic scholar. What inspired you to switch your attention to user experience design?
2: Well, it's a very interesting story, and I wish I could say that there was some kind of uh, premeditation on it, but it kind of happened as a big accident, but maybe is reflective of what was been going on in the culture at the time. So uh, I am not embarrassed about my age. I will tell you that I graduated college in 1995. I started a theater company right away because I was a theater artist and I was working as a temp to pay the bills at the theater company and I was working at a pharmaceutical company and they caught me writing a script and I thought I was fired. But in fact, they called me into the C-suite and asked me to start writing scripts and speeches wow. for the president of Bayer Pharmaceutical and the vice president of sales, Jim Patchen, and a whole bunch of people. And then it was also revealed that I had been helping the secretaries with their computers. So they said, "Oh, you—you you know, computers." Well, we're moving into this era where videos are going to be streamed, and so my creative services profile merged with my. Um, computer geekery, if you will. So uh, I was constantly working in digital products from the moment they got started, and doing anything that they would say a quote-unquote creative needed to do. But I also had this sort of technical skill. I wouldn't say I was—I wasn't coding. The last time I coded, it was in BASIC. Uh, so I, I didn't—I wasn't coding or anything. But I did have a facility with software, and I also had a facility. For talking with engineers. So I would start writing when they started building intranets. I was writing uh, not just for Bayer, but for Citibank and some other, uh, other people that I was freelancing for. I would be writing uh, user manuals and helping them build intranets and, and, and became what is now known as UX writing. In the meantime, I got into graduate school at NYU for performance studies, which is a form of ethnography. And interestingly enough, ethnography and anthropology became very useful in user experience and in technological uh, transformation. So um, my two careers as an artist and scholar and then as a technical and creative services consultant sort of grew together mostly by necessity because real estate markets are the mother of invention and I lived in New York City (laughs) and I needed to make some money. So I was constantly doing the two things side by side but those things, you know, we try to we try to partition or silo parts of ourselves off, and they tend uh, tends not to happen. Um, and so, uh, when I was working for a uh, a uh, Alzheimer's drug, for example, at uh, Bayer Pharmaceutical, I started putting neuroscience and cognitive science into my scholarship, um, and then also um, as as user experience and digital transformation became um, much more prominent as we left the nineties and entered the aughts. I started thinking about the performance of products as a a sort of field of performance studies as well. So those things all started to come together in very interesting ways. And it hasn't been until the past five years that that weird interdisciplinary approach that I brought to the table, um, the interdisciplinary aspect of performance studies, my creative skills as a theater artist, And my knowledge and expertise in technical products in uh, Fortune 500 companies started to come together in a really interesting way, uh, where I ended up working for for the government as a government consultant, and then now for Mindtree as a consultant in innovation and technology um, and research uh, with an emphasis on research. So that's kind of the very convoluted way all of those things braided together, even though they might seem to, uh, to an outsider to be separate.
1: Well, that's terrific, and it's a testament to the idea that you should really explore all your interests, because you don't know how they're going to weave together in the future.
2: No, they don't. And the organizing factor was always me, right? These are the things that I'm interested in, but I also was an ethnographer, and that means I'm paying attention to the culture and studying the culture, so that place where what's happening in the culture, both the business culture and just the culture writ, writ large in in, uh, in the world and myself there, the dividing line is not so clear, right? So, um, so it just, it sort of evolved and I ended up in a, in a place that was useful to a lot of people at this point in my career.
1: So you say that the online school springboard gave you the opportunity to take on this new career, or at least new elements of this career. Um, What skills did you develop there?
2: I would say that Springboard um, helped me network and develop uh, what I have never been super skilled at is the UI design aspect. I was always uh, in what they used to call human factors, but now is user experience, so the research side of things, the writing side of things, the documentation side of things. Uh, and the translation of technical specs between groups that don't normally understand each other. Um, So uh, what Springboard helped me do is to learn the new softwares that have been updated since 1995. So Figma and Mural and and Miro and all of these wonderful tools that we have now, uh, which because I thought I've been digital consulting, since 1995, um, even when I was holding full-time professor positions, I was often doing small gigs on the side in, in, um, in the summers um, and uh, working with people I knew that had small startups uh, and user experience studios like Bill Alexi at Alexi19. And so I, um, uh, I decided, I thought mistakenly, as much as I listen to the culture, I often, often make mistakes in my analysis. And I thought that during the pandemic, I wasn't going to have a lot of work. So I signed up for uh, Springboard to learn the new softwares and to network, and it certainly did help me network. I would say that's the number one thing that Springboard gave me was that it um, it helped me network in the field um, and learn new skills in UI design. So while my job doesn't require me to do a lot of UI design, I am working very closely with UI designers and it gives me greater empathy and understanding of what they're doing. And I think it makes them appreciate me as a leader more because I actually know how to use the tools they're using.
1: So let's explore that a little bit. Um, you've used some terms there. I don't know if you got into all of them, but you talked about UI, which is user interface, if I understand correctly, Mm -hmm. and UX, which is user experience. How do you distinguish between the two, and what are the different approaches one would take to those
2: challenges? That's a great question, and it's it's often confused. It's often confused in people doing hiring as well. <laughs> uh, but user interface design is a place where people who would formally think of themselves as graphic designers might be most comfortable. Uh, user interface design is designing the actual screens that we're going to be using if it's mobile or if it's uh, web, the actual web pages, uh, knowing where to place the elements, knowing uh, how to make the branding work with all of those elements, knowing how to make something look sleek and simple. These are all parts of UI design. Uh, user experience, however, includes UI in its considerations, but user experience can actually encompass not just the products themselves, but the actual experience from the moment the customer engages with the brand all the way through to the completion and hopefully a relationship with that brand. Uh, It also has come to in recent years, they call it now CX customer service, uh, customer experience. And then also HX, as you talked about last week with your last guest, I
0: noticed
2: uh, human experience. And uh, one of the things that I learned about in, in government is the growing interest and the push to use human experience to, de- to design policy, uh, which I think is a huge unexplored area. So many people know the potential that human experience design has to really transform policy but government like universities can sometimes move slowly and thank God because abrupt changes can sometimes be destabilizing. So, you know, it's a process. And I've, I ran into some really great people in, in government consulting that are working on bringing human experience, not just to the products and the, and the digital transformation, uh, like that's happening in industry, but to actual processes and and public policy, uh, which is something I'm really interested in.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, let's expand on that. So, in, in my mind, I imagine that most policies are written by experts in their cubicle, and you're sort of tapping into a lot of what user experience is about, which is getting out and talking to people that will be affected by what you're designing. Is that part of the push there? Is that one of the reasons that, that we're, we're doing more human-centered policy?
2: Yes, because human-centered design is actually not centering the technology; it's centering the humans that need to use it, um, and so and and, and uh, rightfully so, because sometimes when um, a group of very knowledgeable engineers and business people get together to create. Or advance something that incorporates a new technology, the technology can become the focus, but they forget that the users that they're creating it for are not as interested or immersed in that technology as they are and can be alienated by how they build it, which is basically from the very beginning how I came into the picture was I I knew enough about computers to speak intelligently to engineers. I knew enough about science, having a degree in philosophy of science, to be able to talk to biologists and pharmaceutical um, chemists. Um, and and be able to make all of these different specs come together in an experience that salespeople could use, that doctors could understand, and that even you know lower level administrative staff could uh, ex- explain explain to others and understand. So um, from the very very beginning, it, it became this process of bringing technology to people who were not technologists, right? And so. Um, I think that in in human-centered design and public policy, you have the same kind of situation. People who work in policy and politics become so immersed in that field, they can forget that the people who are going to use or and or benefit from that policy don't understand the political science and the bureaucratic uh, operations at work within that policy. So employing human-centered design is making sure that all of the needs of the people who will benefit from that policy Come together with the political needs and the bureaucratic needs, and even just the you know sort of um, uh, you know how 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 we get the policy put forward, um, uh, lead the guiding, uh, lead the design of that policy more than the human factors at times. So we want to make sure that the humans remain at the center of that process.
1: Yeah, this may be a a weird tangent, but I'm thinking of um, if you consider the people affected by your policy, not only is it more appealing to them, but the compliance rate will go up. And and an example is thinking of call before you dig. If you make that an impossible process to figure out who to talk to and and how to ask for what you want, you're not going to get compliance. And then you're going to get somebody sticking a shovel through something.
2: Yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, That's a great analogy. And I think that um, I'm a, I'm a big uh, advocate in business and in universities for the fact that research and human experience and and, and user uh, experience design is a goodwill tour, uh, you're you're gaining you're gaining things that that uh, that increase your understanding, but in involving people in the design of things they're going to use, you increase the chance of adoption of that system, that service, or that policy, right? So, um, doing the research is not just gaining gathering specs, it is actually making sure the people that will benefit from it feel a part of the process and know that it's there to benefit them and feel like they have a stake in it. Uh, I recently posted something in one of my channels, I think it was on LinkedIn, but about the fact that people who incorporate, you know, like business leaders who incorporate frontline workers in their decision-making process have something like a 300 to 400 percent increase of, uh, of, of success, yeah. uh, which makes so much sense, right? You know, if you're going to create something that's going to benefit, say, um, yes, airline stewards and stewardesses, right, um, involving them in the process of designing it um, is crucial. Um, and so when we do research, we do it ethnographically, which is why the interest in my ethnographic skills from performance studies uh, which you know sometimes it, it does a lot of things, but also positions itself between theater and anthropology. Uh, and I studied with Richard Schechner at NYU, who very much was the father of that particular branch of the movement, um, that those skills became uh, really effective in user experience design and human centered de- design writ large because we're trained how to observe, interact, and, uh, and, and measure um, different human groups right? So, uh, and cultural effects. So um, it, it's been just really, really wild to see all of that stuff come into, uh, into play in business as well as in, in the university.
1: Yeah, it is exciting when the problem crops up and you're like, I have a tool for that.
2: Yeah, <laughs> I can do that.
1: <laughs> so you, you recently began to work at MindTree. Um, mm-hmm. What services does MindTree offer?
2: Mindtree is a very large uh, consulting group uh, based in Bangalore, India. Uh, They have a really beautiful uh, genesis story. Uh, They actually, their original logo and branding came from uh, children who are differently abled uh, in, in an institution in India that they also have continued to help. And some of those children that worked on that project still work for the company today, uh, but they do everything from call centers to and now they've just built a consulting group. They mostly have been known for technology and engineering in the past, but they recently built this consulting group uh, that deals in the Fortune 500, you know, Microsoft, Procter & Gamble, the big players. But we're there to um, advance uh, technological strategy and digital transformation. So we're there to enable. We do, um, in my department, the product services uh, and innovation department, we do um, what we call a jump start for any kind of uh, technological innovation a company might be hoping to enact. And that jumpstart involves understanding, ideating, and then accelerating. Uh, which uh, you might recognize that if you know anything about design thinking, it's 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 sort of a, a version of the design thinking template applied to. Uh, we work directly in the C-suite to conceptualize and strategize their digital transformation before it's brought down to the level of code. Uh, so we work with all of the groups affected, all of the stakeholders. We also cultivate and recruit users who are not directly related to the company to get a broader understanding. Um, and then we use that information to ideate with the teams that are involved in the C-suite building these, these products and these services. And then um, we create a prototype that we then kick down to the development team who continue to develop to develop that that product or process, but frequently it's not just a single product. Frequently it's an ecosystem of products Mm -hmm. that are either an ecosystem in the company itself, but more and more um, because of some legal reasons and consulting and also because of just the nature of things now, more and more we're having to develop brand ecosystems with other vendors. So sometimes we're working with multiple products that are internal and then external to other vendors. So we're, we're designing ecosystems.
1: So is that the definition of a digital transformation in your view? Is it when it gets into the ecosystem?
2: When it becomes an ecosystem, yeah, I would think so. Um, you know, they, they say sometimes that all companies are uh, digital companies now, or all companies are technology companies now, and I think that's really true. Uh, I think digital transformation occurs when you're uh, thinking about technological um, advance in almost how, how you do everything and how that all connects the human factors, right? Right. Mm and that's where people like me come in we're there to make sure that you if you try to advance a technical revolution too hard and forget those human factors they won't it won't be adopted right and it will do more harm than than good so we're we're creating balance and now we have this whole open source system so frequently we're looking at like the open source API system how can we make these products extensible with the whole community of open source designers and engineers that want to contribute to digital transformation in the open source ecosystem. So um, it becomes very, it's a complex system. It becomes very, um, very interesting. And to make these things extensible, you have to think in big networked ways. Um, You know, the internet formed as a network, as a web, because that's how human beings operate and that's how we think. And that's how we exist. We are not, an environment and an organism or environment organisms, which is something they say in phenomenology.
1: So, so this is really interesting to me because um, there's, a, there's a tension between making things as simple as possible and also addressing the complexity that exists, especially in an ecosystem. Any is gonna have multiple touch points. How, how do you, first of all, how do you settle on who the user is? We keep talking about user experience. When you have a system that involves so many parties, it can be complicated to even define who the user is. What do you do about that?
2: Well, you know, I I read this this really interesting question because just this morning, I read this really interesting. It it was interesting because of the way the article was framed, but it was a clickbait article about (laughs) uh, human-centered design and public policy. And one of the The things that the writer of the article had said was, well, you know, it's very hard to do human-centered design and policy because who are the users of the policy? Are you going to deal with the politicians? Are you going to deal with the administrators? Are you going to deal with the people who are benefit from the policy or do you deal with the people? But I said, myself welcome to human centered design there isn't a system out there that doesn't have that complexity that we have to consider right Right. so um we are looking at all levels and of course we have to scope based on budget and based on time and all of those things that 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 limit all of us. Um, but you're always thinking in multiple multiple parts. We create what we call personas. So there'll be multiple personas and just how many of those person- personas we can include has to do with the scope of the project. But all of us understand that there are multiple personas at play in any, any system policy or product. So um, that so it's uh, you have to sort of systematize something that is that is constantly fluid and moving, and it's and it's difficult. And you have to be able to uh, match the business needs with those user needs because the business needs are sometimes at conflict with the user needs. Um, But the business understands that they don't if they preclude those user needs, they're going to fail. So you have to make the business needs match the user needs, and you have to like very very carefully slice. How you're going to approach the problem, and frequently um, with agile transformation, the way they do that, we do that is in small slices with minimal viable products that are then then developed iteratively over time. So we do small slices, and that may include only designing for one persona at first, uh, and then adding the others as we go. Um, uh, but but it's an iterative process that we build over time by tinkering.
1: I love it. That wraps up so many themes. Well, I, I, I love that. I, I, I was um, challenged at one point because I was talking about design thinking and the primacy of the user. And I was challenged with that question, you know, who is the user? And I, and I love the way you framed it, that there are multiple personas and one of them is the user. And I think that design thinking is a reaction to the fact that we so frequently forget the user. Yes. But that doesn't mean you can only, you know, it, it, somebody's solutions is like, I always say that if you're bowling too much to the right, the solution is to bowl more to the left. But it doesn't mean you just keep bowling to the left all the time. The, the goal is still to go down the center, right?
0: Yes, yes.
1: But the, these advice, sometimes we get advice that it deals with one problem and it can, if we're not careful and don't think we can create another problem.
2: Absolutely. And that that actually happens. You create your multiple viable product and uh, minimum viable product or uh, minimal viable experience where where I'm at, because sometimes I'm designing experiences and the product doesn't exist yet. Right. So um, and so you get there and you created a whole new set of problems that need to be solved and that's very that's frequent that's why we do research though see that's my that's my pitch for for doing that research up in front in the understand phase because yeah. we can sometimes anticipate those problems but i want to just go back to something that you said that the different personas and the user isn't just one persona there could be multiple sure. because all of them are users in the system so to think very simplistically and kind of, I don't know, almost like in a facile way about it, but uh, you know, you have uh, the system, you have the administrator who's entering information into that system that's serving the customer, not the user, but the customer. And then you have the administrators who are monitor, monitoring the analytics of that system to make business decisions, yep. right? And then you have the engineers who are maintaining that system and perhaps develop, continuing to develop that system. And then the engineers, because you're thinking now more and more about extensibility of, of products, you know how long it's gonna last in the future, a whole team of engineers that never had contact with the original development project problem. These are all users of the system. They're different personas. That are in, and my my colleague John Willis is the one who really um, taught me a lot at Raft. Shout out to John if he ever hears this uh, about engineer experience is a thing that we have to consider because mm-hmm. if an engineer doesn't want to maintain the system and doesn't want to build the system, and in the open source community isn't interested in adding to the system, um, it won't survive. So, um, so we have to think of all of those as users of the system. It's not that there's all different personas and one of them is the user. There are many personas within the user groups that will be using the system.
1: Well said. Yeah. I, I know um, a family of mechanics and they all drive Hondas because they say they're easy to work on. (laughs) And, and that, that isn't necessarily something that that a car company would think about. The user is the guy or the girl in the, in the uh, driver's seat. Usually,
0: yeah, yeah,
2: yeah.
1: Um, so your title is director of user experience research and innovation. So, mm-hmm. can we talk a little bit more about what somebody with that title does? What uh, what what kind of work are you doing under that banner?
2: Well, more and more, I'm dropping the user experience part of that, just to research and innovation, because the skills that I employed as a human centered designer end up uh, applying to not just the user experience design of a of a product or um, or a service, but end up uh, technological problems. Engineering. I do techno uh, technological research, technical research. I do security research. I've recently used human centered design processes in the human, uh, in the government, the federal government, to anticipate security threats because we mm. know from recent current events. That this is a big issue, and if we're not thinking about it from the very beginning of the project, we're not baking in the typical. Uh, just to go off on a tangent for a minute, the typical way to, to do it is to is to wait until the very end of the product when it's when it's all designed, and then do some uh, pen testing, what they call penetration testing, or we do um, you know testing the security of the system. But what if we're thinking about the um, hacker as a user of the system? Beautiful, right? Right? And then so, you test early uh, and often. Yes, yes. So we're actually doing RPG games um, with um, various ha- hacker personas that we've created and things like that, right? So that was really uh, a really fun innovation. So I, I kind of dropped the user experience side of it because it sometimes limits what I actually do. But in my new role in Mindstream, which is brands making new. I've only been there for a month. But um, I, am, I am there to... Um, oversee the research plan for all of the initiatives that we, that our product services and innovation group take on. I'm there to um, help uh, designers with their research needs. I'm there to help the C-suite with their research needs. I'm there to design um, methodologies and operationalize our research because I'm a big believer in the fact that innovation doesn't come as a big uh, lightning bolt of inspiration. Uh, you know, we hear these stories of um, the Eureka dreams that say Einstein had and everything like that, but that is the pinnacle of so many small little iterative things that have been happening over a long period of time. And that that Eureka dream can't come uh, if we're not uh, operationalizing how we do things, because if we don't operationalize how we do research and how we create and how we're creative, Uh, We can't make small iterative changes to our processes and measure the change. So we have to kind of try to do things the same every time we do them so that we can actually improve that system uh, by making small changes, right? It doesn't mean that we're bound to do everything exactly the same way on script every time, but that we have a sort of rough process that we follow, so that if we want to start to experiment and change things, we can change things in small ways and begin to measure the outcomes of those changes. If you're reinventing the wheel every time you you show up, uh, how do you know what worked and what didn't and why? Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it's that way when you have a health problem. You know, people go in and they start doing everything at once. I'm going to start exercising. I'm going to change <laughs> my whole diet. I'm going to quit smoking. I'm going to quit drinking. I'm going to do this, and then you start to feel better, but you don't know which of those things actually like impacted you the most, right? So you have to do things slowly and one at a time so that you actually can measure the system. That's where being somewhat of a social scientist comes in, you know, Uh, so uh, I'm there to operationalize research and I'm basically there just to help make sure that things are done, um, I don't like to say slowly, I like to say smoothly so that um, we can truly uh, grease the to use your bowling analogy you know, to grease the lane for innovation <laughs>
1: yeah. right so yeah i love that 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 sort of reminds me of the expression that elon musk has which is the machine that makes the machine so if if you know the the user research and the user design uh or the user interface all the, all those components are, are the machine then you need to work on how you make those better so i, I think that's terrific you you almost like applying your own toolkit to your toolkit
2: That's absolutely right. Uh, Like when I come into a new role, I immediately start doing one of the tools that we use in human-centered design and in UX is called a journey map we will we will map the journey of a customer like if it's for the Apple store you know they walk by the storefront in the mall and they say maybe I'll go in and then they go in and they start considering Apple products and then they they look around and they they have this really nice feel there Steve Jobs designed it to feel like these lobbies of these beautiful hotels with this sort of slightly art deco feel and you know all of all of these all of these different things that he did uh, so brilliantly to create the Apple experience which is really let's be honest the father of of this 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 movement is the idea that the overall experience is what enables the innovation and the change um, so um, we're, we're there and uh, we're we're creating these maps so the first thing and and we do it for the customer we do it for the engineer we do any 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 person that we're we're Trying to study, we'll create a journey map for. So the first thing I do is create a journey map for our department. What happens when somebody comes to us as a client? What happens when somebody comes to us with a need? Um, how do we serve that person internally? And I'm I'm mapping our journey internally. How to how and how so that we can look at how where our touch points are, where the pain points of our clients are, where the pain points of our colleagues are. Um, and how we can subtly start to uh, prioritize those pain points and chip away at them until those pain points become what people have nauseatingly called delights. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
0: uh,
2: and I think that that term is starting to become to become uh, out of favor or out of vogue because it was so overused for a while. But you know, to turn pain points into delight points um, is, is what we do. And uh, so, yeah, I use our own tools on ourselves. And you'd be surprised at the number of us that don't do that. And I, I, I myself am guilty. I'll catch myself doing things that I would never advise a client to do. Um, uh, or, or I would say to a client, why don't we do a study on that? Um, and so I'm constantly doing that process of employing that from within. Plus, uh, when we encourage our colleagues to work in that way, we're also practicing our craft for our clients, right? So um, it's it's a great Nice, circular process I like to enact wherever I go.
1: So um, speaking of user experiences and user interfaces, as we set up for the show, you're on an iPad. You set up so that you could see me, but not yourself. If I could suggest you move your head so you're covering the ceiling fan, then you'll be center frame.
2: (laughs) Okay. The other way. Yeah. I got to see myself now. Yes. Okay. Like yeah, this?
1: that's better. Yeah, that's better. So that you're a little bit, centered. you were just drifting off a little bit there. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the nitty gritty. Um, and I think this is a common interface, not just to the company you work in, but there's the experience researcher and then the product manager. Mm-hmm. How can they work well together?
2: The product manager and the experience designer? Yes. Experience researcher. Asked, yeah. You just asked the, uh, what's the word? you remember that game Minesweeper? $64,000
1: question <laughs> or whatever.
2: Yeah. You, that game Minesweeper. you know, you just, you just clicked on the wrong little square there. Right. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, well uh, it, it, when the product, when it's like the little girl with the curl, right? When the pro- relationship with the product manager and the experienced designer is good, it's very, very good. But when it's bad, it is that's horrid. Awful. Yeah. Yes. And that's because as I'm sure, you know, and that's why you asked the question a lot of the, 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 responsibilities of the product manager and sometimes the product owner uh, overlap with that of the user experience designer. And um, two things happened when the UX revolution started to take place. It was contemporaneous with the agile revolution, which was very engineering focused. So sometimes we're shoehorning UX processes into an agile process and they don't get along very well sometimes. And um, one of the things that I, I did at Raft, which was really a, a, a talk about delight, a delightful experience, was learning how to infuse HCD and UX throughout the agile process. Um, typically, we will, would do UX like we're doing it at MindTree, and there's a lot to be said for this project, this process, which is we work in a focused way on the experience strategy. Uh, independent of the engineering process, and then we hand it off in waterfall style, for those of you who know waterfall versus agile. Uh, and then it becomes agilized in the hands of the engineering team and the product manager there. In other circumstances, though, that I've worked in at Raft and at other places, Wells Fargo, other places, the product manager and the user experience designer are working together. And see, I think this is the ideal, and it's hard it's hard. It's hard to, to manage in a lot of cases. And I won't say the ideal. It depends on the project. Um, but I would definitely say that um, the um, product manager and the user... I had a great shout out to Katie Nizzi, who was my product manager at Raft. Um, Katie Nizzi um, also has uh, moved on to another role um, and, um, but she was an amazing UX friendly product manager and our collaboration was epic. It was very, very good. Uh, and, um, and, and we were able to do a lot. Uh, and I also had a very good collaboration with our uh, technical lead, Carl Smith, shout out to him as well. Who's also moved on to another role, Um, and we um, we had an excellent collaboration between where Carl was actually participating in all of our iterations in our design thinking workshops. And um, Aaron Beavers, shout out to Aaron, he would show up. He was one of our engineers as well, and he would show up and iterate with us for interfaces, uh, sketch out like low fidelity what we call wireframes and sketches. And we were all working together. Design good designers are complex system designers, so they have something to offer engineers who are solving complex technical problems. And likewise, engineers coding is an incredibly creative task. Uh, This separation between creatives and technologists is is really maddening because most people who are technologists are creative and most of us who are creative understand complex systems because creating anything is a complex system. So. it It was a really that that's an example of a really great collaboration. When it doesn't work, it becomes a territoriality issue and a pissing contest between the product manager and the ux designer. or in my case, i was I was the experienced strategist, I would say, uh, in a lot of cases because, Even though I was, uh, I was doing some UI design. I was also um, sort of um, making sure that the UI and the research are working together, and that the research is not being done in a room somewhere and never impacting the product. Making sure that the research is done in a way that it can actually impact the product. Uh, So, as that kind of strategist, um, we, uh, you know, it can get. And who's doing the competitive analysis, for example? I mean, we have to do a competitive analysis to, to do a good design. Um, but, uh, is, is there's also the business, uh, values of the competitive design and there's KPIs that are UX KPIs and there are KPIs that are business KPIs. So, um, they all work together. They're all interrelated. We all have to figure out how to talk about these things together, but for some people it can just become like, you know, I do the KPIs, I define the MVP, I, you know, And, um, and that, that never works for anybody. I mean, that's just, you know, so it's another human system with complicated interactions that have to be dealt with empathetically.
1: Yeah. So there's a couple of threads to what you said there as well. And it reminds me of this idea that you can bowl too much one way or the other, um, Two threads in there. One is have as many people as possible or practical in the room, or at least engaged frequently, and then also iterating frequently. And, and either one, obviously there, there's a sweet spot, right? How do you know when you're going too far with too many iterations or too many people in the room?
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a great question. Um, well, from, people are always shocked to hear this, um, but you know, design researchers like myself also research design, right? We don't just research our products. We research the history. I can tell you a little bit about the history of UX and I can tell you about the history of design. And, um, and so there are people who study scientifically how these things work and uh, various people, Microsoft, IBM, uh, other groups, Ideo, um, they have come up with um, rules of thumb. Uh, For example, in, Market research. We've taught from social scientists that you know, large, you know, the bigger, you know, the bigger the number, like in statistics, the bigger the number, the more accurate the outcome, right? So large samples. We're going to survey a thousand people, and um, and and there is a place for that in UX, and I can tell you later where that place is. But at the very beginning, when we're understanding and empathizing, we have found that um, groups of four or five are, Mm -hmm. are adequate because we have something called the phenomenological saturation point. And that's just a fancy way of saying, there's a point at which we just don't learn anything new, right? There's a point at which the people we're interviewing or the people we're workshopping with are all saying exactly the same things. And when you see those insights diminishing, you know you've reached that point. And you know what? It tends to happen about four or five. In really complex situations, you might have to take another slice, but I'm always arguing for doing those small groups same thing with stakeholder interviews. I run design sprints, as you know, we've done one together. Yes. I run I run design sprints and um, as some, ours was a very short but sweet one, but I do ones that are week long, six weeks long, sometimes 10 weeks long. Um, and in that process, you uh, people often don't want to alienate anybody. So they include everybody, but I'm always arguing to um, actually slice things in half. I'll do this workshop two or three times with to have smaller groups of people because, um, for example, um, it's it's even more true since we've been doing things remotely than it is when we're doing them in rooms. Uh, but when you get more than about five or six people, people start to coast. They start to lean out. They start to do other things on their computer. It's just human nature because they know that they won't be missed and that they yeah. can. So they check out. And. Most human beings, myself included, need to have, feel like they're super important in order to continue.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Nobody, we just know that people who don't feel valued or important don't stay engaged. Uh, and that's a larger question for how we engage employees as well in, in organizational psychology. But in this, in this particular instance, that means that they stop interacting with the mural board. Or if we're in a room, it means they stop interacting with the sticky notes because they can hide and lean out and coast. Uh, so when people really feel like their ideas are being heard and recognized, um, they're in a room, uh, they, they're more engaged. Um, and so, um, I try to keep those groups really small. I think seven is probably, uh, as big as you want to get it. Having said that, there are times that you have to do things in larger groups for whatever reason, either your stakeholders need you to do it. There's just not enough time. All these people really do have to be included, Um, And so the very important thing that there that I have learned um, from many, many mistakes is that um, you need to have a very strong process pre-vetted with who the decision maker is going to be. And everybody needs to know that that's the decision, the decision maker. And and we can't and we can't be resentful of it Um, because the idea is this. You may disagree with what that decision maker we have an irresolvable conflict between stakeholders, say, and we've all pre-agreed that this is our decision maker. Um, In order for us to do anything, we can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, Mm -hmm. right? So we have to say, we've all agreed that when it comes to this moment where the time is up and we need to move on to the next step, that Tim is going to be the decider. So that Tim, he's going to decide and we're not going to carry that resentment into the next phase. Um, and that there'll be we'll no more retro. next time. Yeah. And there'll be time for retro at the end to talk yeah. about that, that, that point and and to measure whether that decision actually was the wrong one. Um, mm-hmm. But that we have to agree that there's somebody there to make that decision. And, and that sometimes if that's not predetermined, always, there are people in the room that think they're that, that person by default. Mm-hmm. So um, it creates hostility. And another situation, like with product managers and UX experience designers, that um, that you know where this person thinks that they should decide, and this other person thinks that they should decide, and then you carry that hostility throughout the rest of the design sprint. So it's crucial that we have that sort of powwow at the beginning, and we understand that this is this is this is the process, and Tim is the decider, or Jen is the, the decider, and then we're going to move on. And that also, if that person, because frequently in the real world, people have to step in and out of these things. You know, If Tim is not there, then Sarah is going to be the desi- the, the yeah. decider and, and, and that's the way that's gonna go.
1: Excellent. So you mentioned a couple of tools that you might use, I think in, in the phase of UX research, Post-it notes, Mural, which is an online uh, platform for sharing thoughts and moving things around and annotating. Uh, what are some of the tools you use and can you get into how they work and how they contribute to
0: your work?
2: Sure. Um, well, I use Evernote. Um, it, and that's simply, I'm I've, I've starting to become, I was joking with my husband who's a little bit older than me um, that, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, he's reached that point where you know, just the new just seems like ridiculous. Um, and I'm starting to get there sometimes too. Like I'm not so sure I'm in a new environment now where I'm using Teams and Teams has OneNote, which is a great tool as well. But I've been using Evernote for so long uh, throughout my life as a researcher. I use Evernote to organize my notes. It's just, it's just second nature to me. I use Evernote. I use Mural. Uh, we use Figma for wireframes and, and iterations. We can use Figma for a lot of things, actually. And then we can also bring Figma into Mural um, to test things like we did in our design sprint, Tim. Um, and, um, and then we use, um, we're, we're starting to think about using other tools for organizing like qualitative research. We haven't actually adopted them yet, but we're considering uh, tools. Uh, I have long, I think anybody who does my work knows that our qualitative research often gets lost, and I think even social scientists know this because it's very hard to use a database to organize qualitative data the same way you do quantitative. And um, there's ways to do it. It's just that a lot there's not as much money in right now in organizing qualitative data as there is quantitative data. So. Um, I have long said that if we began building a data lake of qualitative data, which some people are doing, I don't want to make it sound like that I just invented this out of nowhere because I think any good idea, most people come to it sort of at the same time, right? You know, hey, uh, and there are people doing this, but um, if we could have a, a, a qualitative data lake, you start to get to a point where you can simulate u- simulate users in various situations because you have this, um, you know, uh, intel intelligent system of past research and not every user situation is completely unique, right? So you can, if you don't, if, if you're doing something where you don't have enough time to recruit users, you could perhaps simulate a user. That's um, exciting. Yeah. And so um, I've talked to uh, some friends of mine who are data scientists about building it. There are some companies that have started to build it. Um, I don't want to say any names because I'm still reviewing vendors, um, but I think that I think that this is a really exciting field of research, especially as artificial intelligence um, advances in how we organize qualitative data. Um, so, yeah, so right now I'm organizing my qualitative data in very old fashioned kind of ways. Um, I'm a big uh, proponent of using affinity maps, so I keep them um, first in text files and then in Excel files and then also in um, mural boards. Um, and then we affinity map them and those insights are also indexed. Um, but it's, 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 it's an evolving process. I don't think we've really perfected the tools yet for, um, qualitative user research to tell you the truth. So I'm always looking for new tools. And like I said, I'm reviewing vendors all the time and, and, and looking at, you know, um, what, 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 what are the needs and how can we do this simply, um, and make, our work um, move beyond the life of the individual products that we're doing so that we can accumulate a kind of knowledge and wisdom of our clients.
1: So that is fascinating. I'll have to have you back when that's up and running. Um, And it does raise, so first of all, I mean, the the utility is clear, right? You could could ask um, a machine learning system you know what are the odds of this being appealing to this particular um, uh, user group, right? But you get into some really interesting ethical areas because now the 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 information about users and probably their demographics is being stored for a future purpose. So you have the potential, you have the permissions, and you have the security, and then you also have that that risk of running the algorithm, and it only it only returns the answer that was biased by you in the first place.
2: Yes. Well, which is why, and and this is what we're, the problem with AI writ large, right? You know, like we have, we have a coding problem. We have, we're we're coding biases and wrong information over and over and over again. And it's replicating like viruses in our artificially intelligent systems. It's uh, uh, reifying and reinforcing some of the worst tendencies in human nature. Um, and uh, and we know this. We also know that a lot of artificially intelligent systems have data problems. That's what we call garbage in, garbage out. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that we have the illusion. We you know there's certain things that artificial intelligence have d- has done really well, and one of them is gathering information, visual information. Uh, And that is that is very exciting. Uh, But there's other things, especially when you talk about sentiment analysis and predicting human behavior where we have Houston, we have a problem. There's some there's some things. Uh, But yes, we you know, this is predicated on the idea that all of the information that we gather from our users is divorced from PII right, that, you know, if I have you in a user group, your name and and information is never going to make it into my database. Um, And I flatten my data out as soon as we start affinity mapping, even if it's stakeholders, I remove all the identifying information. It's somewhere, somewhere secure if we need to find it. But when we're dealing with the insights, we don't know who said what, which actually benefits the whole process, right? Because, you know, say the chief innovation officer said one thing, but this uh, frontline worker said something else. Um, it's not privileged to anybody working with it as we affinity map it. We don't know who said it, right? Um, and so, in the system, it would be the same. It would be the same thing. Um, but you know, obviously, this is something I have not worked out at any. Uh, it's all just conceptual at this point. And there are groups who are already doing it. And I'm looking at uh, honestly. I'm looking at is it worth it to pursue an initiative? to actually design this, you know, custom, or is is it something that other people are already doing really well, which I have a suspicion. Some people are, be- I've looked at a couple of vendors who are doing something. I haven't tested it enough yet, um, but something very close to what I'm talking about. But yeah, you know, you'd have to have the the, P, the PII being personally identifying information, right? So um, also, uh, you know, you'd have to have permission. But again, you know, sometimes I, I, I don't, I, I, I in no way, as a person who studied ethics quite a bit, I, I, I in no way uh, diminish concerns about this in the future with uh, artificial intelligence about who owns the data and privacy and issues. But one thing people don't understand, like, you know, your phone is listening to you and there are definitely problems with that, right? Um, but it really isn't like they're listening specifically to you, Tim, or to me, right? Uh, where they And there's somebody on the other end understanding that when I'm talking about the new curtains in my bedroom, I'm talking to my husband and the nature of our relationship and what we're, it's just those, those little signifiers, like curtains, colors, possible customer desire. And, and I get, and I get an email the next day about a curtain sale at Bed Bath and Beyond, you know, like, um, and so uh, it's, it's not as invasive as it feels at first, because it is very much divorced from the kinds of things, the kinds of meaning that, um, and that's not to diminish the very real privacy concern that's going on there at all. I'm just saying it's not like they're listening to you with with understanding about your personal, uh, they're looking for keywords that trigger a possible customer desire that they can tap into. So it, it, this would be similar. This would be taking a hundred people's perspective on what they're looking for in a search engine and how to search. And uh, so maybe I work on five different products in completely different fields, but general insights about search engines would be um, aggregated and deliver insight. And it would never be substitute for actually doing the groundwork with your users. It would give you a place to start so you can scope more effectively. Like we already know these things. Let's test these things rather than reinventing the wheel, which I see a lot in UX, to tell you the truth. There's a lot of people who go out and start studying users without looking at what I call the secondary research. A lot of people call the secondary research that's already been done. And it's all published and out there. User experience designers are very like big about promoting their case studies and, mm-hmm. and putting things out there. We're not as, as good as like Gartner Group or those other... Uh, large research organizations that that put together large white papers that they sell. Like a lot of us are just putting this information out there because we're promoting ourselves. Right. So you can find lots of user insights that have already been done. And and then also those big people like Boston Consulting Group, Gartner Group, um, uh, McKinsey um, that, that have done a lot of work and that you're not going to take those insights as gospel, but they give you a, um, a starting place and a place to scope and an intuition about how to move forward without replicating efforts that have already been done. So it can be efficient. And I imagine that this qualitative database would be the same thing. It's just a tool to help you scope and to sort of develop intuitions before you start.
1: Right. So earlier on you, you certainly mentioned ethnography, and I think you may have even mentioned anthropology. What are the differences between the two, and how do these approaches contribute to UX research?
2: I mean, that's a really big question, but ethnography, I would say, is a sort of practice within anthropology, okay. um, and and that. Um, we uh, we are studying groups. We, we learn uh, things about confirmation bias. We learn things about how our observation is actually altering the people that we're observing. Uh, there's lots of ethnic, eth- ethnic <laughs> ethical concerns uh, about ethnic concerns within ethnology that, that we are trained to compassionate about um, and to um, study human groups for insights, um, while also realizing even the practice of doing that is beset with ethical issues and also confirmation bias issues and uh, and, and what have you. So um, in in performance studies, which as I said was in one branch of it, it's a very complicated field. Like I said, when there's a good idea uh, that happens, many people come to it at once at the same time. And, and so um, you know, there was lots of people coming to the performance studies paradigm at the same time. And so different branches and then, then the um, prime prime movers of the movement developed spin-off groups. But this particular branch, what we call East Coast Performance Studies, which is where I studied at NYU, was situated as being between theater and anthropology. And the joke was always Maybe this is even true. Certain, it's an urban myth, maybe, but that you know Richard would sort of winkingly say about it was that there were these, you know, there was this anthropologist and this theater person, and they were attracted to each other, and they wanted to have a conference. Uh, <laughs> so, um, so the uh, you know, but the field started very much situated between the study of drama as a social practice, uh, not just as a form of literature, which is how in the West it evolved, but as a social practice uh, and as a form of human behavior. Um, so that's that's where I sort of evolved. And then I was trained how to practice ethnography within that, both something called um, auto-ethnography, including your own biography in everything that you do, um, and then just ethnographic practice uh, in general, like how to ethically go in and observe groups and gain valid insights. Um so as I was trying to pay for my NYU degree with my uh, digital transformation consultancy, um, that, that came in really, really useful. At yeah, that, that was a, a great <laughs> Reese's
1: peanut butter cup moment, right? You remember yeah, that yeah. commercial where the, you got chocolate in my peanut butter and, and a new, <laughs> yeah, a new thing was born. Chocolate.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. So I was there for that fortunately, and it benefited me. I, you know, you don't think of the fact that you have to work so hard as a person coming from like a non-professional class, right. You know, going to advance yourself, you know, my parents hadn't gone to college. They both went on later through the community to get out degrees, you know, when they were older, but they didn't go to college. And, um, and we were like working class Queens, New York, um, you know, sometimes even, you know, uh, there was lots of things going on. So um, it was uh, really hard for me to get, educated, um, you know, uh, my parents fully supported everything I did. Um, but you know, there wasn't a lot of money. Right. So, um, we, uh, I had, I had to, I had to pay New York rent. Right. So that, that was there. And fortunately I had a, a geek godfather who was a single man who lived in a trailer that was filled with IBM computers. Hmm. Um, and when I was eight, he brought me a Vic 20 and a compute magazine, uh, subscription. Um, and, I mean, it has it all sort of, and, and I was also doing plays in my backyard at this, it all came together in very, very weird ways <laughs> that, that, that has led to a, a career I wouldn't trade for the world.
1: That's great. Um, one of the, one of the other balance points, um, you know, between left and right and extremes is, um, the challenge of designing user experience and reducing cognitive demand. So, how do you take something, an experience that could be quite complex, and how do you simplify it for the user? What are the approaches you take for that?
2: Well, uh, I use like an x and y axis, and I know this sounds totally geeky, but bear with me. So, I think of like uh, this is just one aspect; it's not only this, and I also am a big proponent um, of accessibility. and, um, and thinking about people with different, uh, like neuro differences, right? So people um, all across the, the neuro spectrum, um, how they interact with things is different. Um, but as in other forms of accessibility and inclusion, we find that when we design for one specific group, we actually improve the experience for everybody mm-hmm. uh, to use visual uh, as one, you know, when you make something easy to read for a visually impaired person, you make it easier to read for everybody. Right. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's always a good practice. Um, but I think of two things. I think of, um, people with memory is differences in memory. I, I don't want to say impairments necessarily, cause there's some people who have, you know, just differences, but differences in, in, um, in memory. Um, and then people who have differences, um, uh, so so on that axis, you have people who can't remember things from one screen to another, so you don't want to have too many screens, right? But then there's people who have um, uh, difficulty in processing information, uh, written information or information that they're hearing, because hopefully we're making it accessible to those who cannot read uh, and are, are um, visually impaired. So um, you have to chart the number of interactions against the clarity of the experience in terms of a, a comprehension. So in some cases, you might actually introduce more interactions, more screens to improve the clarity of the experience. But in some places you might um, actually make the experience a little more dense to remove the number of interactions. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a, a tight wire. And that's just one tool that I use to create a uh, low cognitive load in, in what we design. Um, and I mentioned earlier that early on in my career, I brought neuroscience into my practice because I had been deployed multiple times on, um, uh, Alzheimer's drugs. It was just one of these coincidences. And, and because I had facility with the terminologies, I was, um, sent out to talk to, um, uh, neurologists, and uh, biochemists and then Salesforce people. So I had to learn all the terminologies to be able to translate between the groups. Um, and so at that time I was also studying at NYU. So it just seeped into all of my ethnography and uh, study of drama and theater. Um, so that when I arrived at University of Pittsburgh in 2001, I was uh, incorporating that work and that work again has impacted uh, the work I do as, a, uh, as an experienced strategist. Um, Because I'm able to think in terms of short-term memory, long-term memory, working memory, semantic memory, uh, and and things like that to um, understand how somebody might experience uh, an app or um, any kind of experience, a service, um, from various neurological vantage points.
1: So I love the idea that you raised in the beginning there about if you make it easier for one person, you've probably made it easier for everyone. Or if somebody's struggling with it and you address that struggle. And there are examples in the physical world, right? There's the button to get into the, the door, the, the motorized door. Yeah, that it was originally conceived of in the curb cut were originally conceived, I think, for, for people in a wheelchair but who hasn't used that convenience at some point in their life with the roller bag or, you know, the the coffee or whatever. So it makes it easier for everyone. I really like that approach. Um, And the, the, the the balance between having a million screens or a million things on one screen, you see that in cars, right? As we move more things onto the screen there, people complain, well, it took me forever to find the seat adjustments. Well, did you notice your seat as a 30 way, adjustment right you couldn't if it would dominate the dash if we had a button for everything in your car and mm-hmm. so that that really is a tightrope as you say it's uh it, it's a
2: challenge and finding the sweet spot is difficult and it's iterative yeah. right it's a iterative you got to try well let's try it with less screens and more information and test it
0: yeah
2: and then what comes back from that testing and and when you when you think about it along those two axes uh, and, and again this is this is a, I, I have this uh, webinar I'm building right now. Uh, I'll let you know when it's done and in what channel it's going to come out, but it's called uh, Pantsers and Planners. Mm. Um, and uh, it, bear with me how it relates to this conversation. But, you know, there's people in, I sometimes taught creative writing throughout my career as well, because I had plays that were, were produced and published. And so uh, I would be employed to teach creative writing at various junctures. And so I would talk about pantsers and planners. There's some of us who write things and um, we uh, plan out everything. We have the whole plot arc. We have the characters. We know, um, you know, when the reversal is going to happen and everything else like that. And then there's those of us who just show up at the page and write and let it evolve organically. And so, uh, not to give away too much of what what's going to happen this in this webinar, but you know those two those two groups of, of people are um, are uh, very uh, passionate in how they identify themselves. Uh, so when I come to a creative team and I start talking about X and Y axis, uh, axes, axes, uh, some people's eyes just sort of cross, like, oh my gosh, it's just intuitive. Um, but what it helps us do is to, um, I'm there to sort of be that that uh, school mom nerd that, that introduces these things because it allows us to think things through methodically and carefully, and then it allows us to test it. Is that the only thing in the cognitive load of the app? Absolutely not, but it's one tool we can use to sort of break things down and measure, right? Well, um, there's more things to this cognitive load idea than just the number of interactions and the clarity of the experience, but we can at least break down and change things along those two axes and test them and iterate on them. And in the process of doing that, we're actually changing other things. And that's how that relates to plotters and, pl- uh, plotters and pantsers. All all plotters are also pantsers and all, I mean, sorry, all planners are also pantsers and all pantsers are also planners. It just, we we do both things um mm-hmm. and so um that you know i take very creative and intuitive people and i ask them to to think th- through things methodically and it creates tension um but it's a healthy tension um and i've never had somebody who's gone through the process and afterwards and said that was not useful at all
0: mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> there might be resistance in the beginning because they don't think of themselves as planners they don't sure. think of themselves as analytic people. And we know that there's never been a greater disservice than this idea of the brain halves, um, which is a complete myth, um, or learning styles, that, that, that theory that just won't die um, because so many teachers were taught it and, and found it useful. And it probably was useful for diversifying their curriculum, right? But it was not useful because it's actually true. We all do have all those learning styles. We all, uh, there's no left side, right side of the brain where, you know, um, there are people who tend to be uh, certain ways, but it, the brain is neuroplastic. It works in multiple ways and not just, you know, I do all this on one side and I do all that on the other. We can remove a whole half a brain and a person can be very functional. <laughs>
1: Yeah. You can keep doing your job because it's only left brain. Yeah.
2: Yeah. 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 So, um, uh, I'm introducing what people have come to identify as, you know, one side of the brain and it's not their side. Um, but, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting. So, um, yeah. So much of what
1: you've, what you've been describing, um, you know, whether you're a pantser or a planner or, um, you know that we're going to have multiple layers to the interface or a simple one page or whatever it, it, it's it's about you developing a sense organ for when things are going well right to find that sweet spot and if you don't know that you need that sense organ that you might be blind to what's going on there that's where experience comes in that's why it's so important to have somebody like a that many companies who don't go through this type of process very often may not develop those sense organs so having a consultation group or a consultant, like you come in is so valuable under those circumstances. Cause it, you, you really are aware of, oh, okay, you're bowling to the left. You can't even see it.
2: Yeah. And multiple times, like, you know, I do both mixed method, um, testing. I'm not, um, I do quantitative testing and I do qualitative testing and, um, it's it's interesting. They think of me as doing research and they understand and empathize phase, but they don't understand what research I'm doing once it gets down to the level of code. And like I said, I when people get to know me, I end up doing all kinds of things you never would have thought that a, a creative person would be doing. Um, uh, but I um I also come in to test. So after you launch, we have to test and we have to learn and we have to refine. Um, this idea that we create a product, launch it, and we're done, it just doesn't exist anymore. Um yeah. And, um, sometimes, you know, it's ridiculous though, you know, the number of software downloads is like, we're just creating another version just because we have to, or we have planned obsolescence and we have to keep, <laughs> you know, but for the most part, it's a, it's a, a net positive on business processes to think this way that, you know, it's not over once we launch. That's just the first, that's just the first step. And now we're going to test and we're going to find out what's working and what's not. And then we're going to go back and we're going to prioritize be- amongst those things. And we're going to try to fix one, two, and three of these top five things. Uh, And then we're going to come back and we're going to test. And guess what? We found out in fixing one, two, and three, we also, we didn't fix four, but we fixed five, six, seven, and eight, right? Um, Or the other thing, we fixed one, two, and three, and then we messed up five, six, seven, eight.
1: So so this is actually another theme I wanted to get into with you. Um, Design thinking my interpretation is it's really keen on saying, stop trying to make a product so quickly. You should prototype more and test against the prototype because it's cheaper to do that than building an actual thing. But then on the other side, you got lean startup saying you could spend your life prototyping. You just put something in the marketplace because you can prototype forever and you're never going to get the lessons that trying to have a product live or die in the marketplace will give you. I, how do you navigate that tension between, okay, enough already, we're not prototyping, now we need to move into a a product, and we need to accept the fact we're going to iterate the product too?
2: Well, you know, I'm going to sort of uh, remind me to answer that question concretely, because I want to just touch on something that you're bringing up here, which I think is really interesting about humans in general. We have this tendency to create these false dichotomies, right? Um, because, and I don't think it's, it's a bad tendency because it's the dialectic process. If we can um, turn things down into, uh, you know, team red and team green, um, we can learn fruitful things from the tension between those two things from, and in drama, you know, the antagonist and the protagonist and the tension between us. We all travel a journey where we laugh, we cry, and we learn a lot, right? (laughs) Uh, That is the dramatic structure. So, um, and it's the dialectical structure as well, which is uh, the way humans learn a lot, the Socratic method and turning things into a dialogue and a question and answer. We've done this thing where we've turned this into a, everybody likes to quote the Steve Jobs quote, um, which is, uh, don't, ask the consumers what they want because they don't know it's intuitive and it's the genius and all that who's going to create the innovation. And that's always attached to his reference to the Henry Ford quote, Mm -hmm. which I'm going to paraphrase it, but if, you know, we would, we would just build a faster horse instead of the car. Uh Um, And so I I might've said that wrong, but I think we all know the the thing I'm referencing. So um, it's also. um, And so but the, the fact is, is that Steve Jobs is actually the father of user research, as is Wozniak, probably even Wozniak more than, than Jobs. They were researching and observing human users all the time, including themselves as a user. Um, and so uh, this idea, it's like either you do research or you just, you know, we build it fast and we break it and then we learn from that. You know, I think the thing is, it's like measure, measure twice and cut once. It makes good sense to do some of this. How much you're going to do is a business need question. And I don't think it's like one is better than the other. It's, it's just about the business needs. It's about the capital that's available. It's about the resources that are available. But the big struggle for me is always the balance between the short-term KPI and the long-term one. Mm. Uh, almost anything I do in business, I am always pushing for a long-term KPI. Uh, and when I do it well, I can roll it into lots of great short-term KPIs, key performance indicators for anybody who's listening, um, that, that doesn't know what, what I'm talking about, you know, things that we measure for business success, things that give us a return on investment. Um, so, uh, you want to balance a long-term KPI with a short-term KPI and everything that you do. So, um, you scope it, uh can we, can we justify six weeks? What, what are the costs? And you do a risk analysis. What's the cost of making a mistake here
0: right? Right. Yep.
2: versus what's the cost of not getting to market quickly. Um, and I can see, and that, and that's what people don't like to hear is the nuance, right? <laughs> we want to hear like user research. Yep.
0: Well, uh,
1: but judgment t- is still required, right?
2: Yeah. I, I will tell you that, uh, that people who do research uh, succeed more. I mean, it's a Mm no-brainer. The people who build it and break it fast uh, fail. Um, We know it. We have the measures. We have millions of case studies. Uh, McKinsey did, and, and this is one of the problems in my field now, is that McKinsey did all the work, released all the numbers, and then everybody ran to, to, to hire UX designers without even understanding what they were hiring or who they were hiring. And they started pushing marketing people into UX and calling them UX and graphic designers into UX and calling them UX they're really UI and all of, all of these things. And it's now a big, big and we'll see how it all shakes out um, in, the, in the long run. I mean, there's a lot of people out there practicing UX that are not doing UX at all. And a lot of people who don't even know they're doing UX and doing it really well. (laughs) So um, it's, it's, it's a really kind of convoluted situation, but I think it's like a false dichotomy. Like there's a certain situation in which you want to build it fast and break it. Right. Um, And then there's a certain situation, but there's a kind of also a machismo involved here. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I want to get in on the ground and start building stuff. Right. (laughs) Right. And I want to build it. You know, because that's what I do. I'm building it, and you're making me stop and think about it. Is really not, um, and and that's got to stop. That's got to stop because um, it's a complex system, and you can create so many more secondary and tertiary problems. And I've seen, I've seen whole processes like you're doing a research and discovery process, and you and you're employing twelve engineers and one designer part time, who is a designer and researcher in one. Uh, That that's not that's not going to work, right? It's a research and discovery process, right? So there's a time to employ research and discovery and, and creative design thinking. And there's a time to employ building in an ideal world. Um, we'd all be working together. They wouldn't be that, that division. And I've seen that happen and it's lightning in a bottle. Um, it's, it's, it happened in certain situations in my past. It's happened in my recent past. I referenced uh, a really good collaboration with a tech lead and a, um, a product manager that was just like uh, really, really lovely. Um, and um, you know, where we weren't just innovating for the product that we were building, we're innovating a process. Um, So, um, yeah, but in answer to the original question, like, how do I know, uh, I ask for all of those things with my client, when we're talking about timeframes, you know, what's the risk of doing this wrong? What's the risk of uh, not going to market? whether it's a B a E product a business to employee product or a b2c product or a b2b B product what's the risk if the risk um what's the risk of getting to market and making a bad impression mm-hmm. you know once you lose that first encounter
1: so you know let me let me um ask another thing then um I'll, the way you describe the work you do it sounds like you're generally creating something entirely new you're not, uh, for example, your, your screen, um, you're not, for example, your uh, screen, you're not, for example, buying an enterprise resource planning system or, or advising a, a company on, how, on which one to select and how to implement it. Is that true or does that sometimes enter into the work you do?
2: Um, it's different from client to client. Sometimes I am, like I said, developing a whole ecosystem that involves a strategy with multiple products that I will never actually be down in the nitty gritty of. And sometimes I'm developing a single product product, of, part of a larger strategy I had nothing to do with. Um, and so um, it, it depends. And sometimes I'm redesigning and I have a system for a redesign. Like we start with a strong heuristic analysis, uh, uh, like the projects we worked on together, you know? Um, and then sometimes I'm creating something de novo that didn't exist. Already, that we know has to be there. Most people, though, however, have this idea: I've got to get to market. Most people are starting with something that they did sloppy, cheaply, and wrong. You know, you've heard fast, cheap, and out of control, right? <laughs> right? You know, like yeah. they most most people are starting with something that they just threw together and threw out there because they were afraid of not being out there. But that can create a lot of secondary problems that create extra time and money to correct. I'll give you an example. So. Um, let's say I'm going to try to change some details so that I, you know, but let's say that I rush and I do something cheaply out in the market um, because I know the other competitors have it. I haven't made the time for it. I haven't done the research and the length work for it. I just put it there as a placeholder. Well, the bad experience that that's generating for your employees and for the people that are using it, the consumers is accumulating in the ecosystem. And once you design your new product, you have a much, huge, a much bigger problem to tackle, which is perception.
0: Yeah, higher right? yeah
2: Yeah. Then if you had just kept it off the market and embarrassingly said, no, we don't have an app yet. <laughs> We're working on it. Right? Right. It would be better to have no app or no uh, whatever product you're because you Because
1: you can get a reputation. It, don't buy that. It's buggy. Well, yeah. it was yeah. in the beginning, but nobody's changed their mind since.
2: Or you can spend a whole lot of money on a research and discovery process that you begin building right away, uh, even though you haven't done the adequate research and design discovery beforehand, and you create a product at the end that has no actual users. um, Then if you had taken that same amount of time and doesn't solve any problems, then people will say, oh, well, that's what we learned. But if you had just taken even half that time to do the research and discovery with some designers and researchers, that first MVP or that first proof of concept would actually be much further along. Yeah. So I I, I can't find any situation in my mind where I I would say no research and no uh, design thinking discovery and human-centered design process is is advisable. But I can think of times where you might compress it like we did, Mm -hmm. right? It was just the situation. It's better than doing nothing. Now, I have colleagues that when I say, well, it's better than doing nothing, they get very angry because they're perfectionists.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but I so far have never seen a situation where even a little bit of research didn't help. A little bit of discovery didn't help.
0: Yeah, right? absolutely.
2: Even if it's not done, again, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, even if it's not done adequately. Like when, when we do in a design thinking workshop and we have internal stakeholders act as the users, there's huge problems with that, but that's actually better than doing no testing at all.
1: <laughs> yeah. Bravo. I like that. You mentioned earlier that, um, you've changed your practice a little bit, uh, when it comes to user experience research, because of the pandemic, people working from home, connecting from, you know, different locations. Can you expand on that? How do you make that work when you're probably usually accustomed to doing things in person?
2: You know, I have to answer this very carefully because um, my enthusiasm for the remote work that evolved over the pandemic is uh, pretty strong. And in the past, I've made the mistake of overselling that enthusiasm and therefore eclipsing people's absolutely valid feelings of loss and struggle during the pandemic. Uh, so I wanna frame what I'm about to say with, this is uh, not to say that in-person work is not, um, there wasn't a loss and that if you were struggling that you just didn't get it. I, I will say, le- I, this is to say that like, my experience of evolving digital technology coming together with my interest in the arts and then uh, ethnography and anthropology all, and then working on Alzheimer's drugs and cognitive science, all coming together. My particular skills came together during the pandemic very well. And my particular personality um, issues came together very well. And so I, sort of thrived both as an instructor at universities and as um, a user researcher and I will uh, enumerate the ways in which um, I think things have improved for user research using remote tools with the caveat that I am not ignoring the ways in which it has suffered and that we will benefit when we come back but I also full disclosure am a big proponent of things have changed, remote work is here to stay, hybrid work environments are superior. Um, and uh, we could talk about that at another time. Uh, but I, you know, so I, if you have struggled during this time as a user researcher or professor or any kind of person, uh, I'm here for you and I have lots of colleagues that did well and there's very good reasons for it to have been a struggle and a, a period of suffering. But for me, it was revelatory. Um, and I'll give you the first example. So as an ethnographer, one of the things I've sold is I can embed myself with your employees and your consumers and observe them like a professional anthropologist. And it has been like a selling point for me as a consultant, right? Um, so you would think that that kind of embedded ethnographic research would really suffer. And it, and it did. There are certain things I just couldn't do. However, uh, I'll give you two or three examples of how using remote tools actually Um, enhanced the ethnographic experience. So uh, I was doing research for a physician group. This is before I was working at Raft when I was still working in my private consultancy. And I was working for a a, a physician group uh, and and before my injury, obviously. Um, And they were doing... um, they were exploring the possibility and here is a group doing their due diligence. They were not necessarily going to build the app that we were designing, but we were going to design a prototype for an app as a, what if kind of scenario? What if we ventured into nutraceuticals, right? What if we, Um, ventured. There's all kinds of business concerns there. There's all kinds of ethical concerns with uh, developing a nutraceutical that they were also exploring. But in the meantime, they hired me to do the research on nutraceuticals uh, as a market space, nutraceuticals as a a way to digitally transform their practice uh, by forming a a consultancy online. Uh, You've seen a lot of them recently too, uh, (laughs) exploding during the pandemic. This was prior to that. I started the project before the pandemic and continued it during the pandemic. And so rather than uh, inviting users in for user workshops into a room, I was interviewing users, potential users, uh, one-on-one on on camera. And one of the things we were talking about was how do you take your supplements? They were pre-screened to be people who already use supplements for their families. How do you take them? And this woman was in her home and she actually took her iPad into Her pantry showed me how she aligned her, her, all the pills her family took on a shelf. Uh, Then she took me into her bathroom and showed me another set of supplements that she took at another time during the day. Um, And then, you know, actually showed me her refrigerator to, to show me the foods that she ate. Um, this was far more intimate than any kind of study I ever would have. There's never a situation in which I'm going to live in a consumer's home <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, and, and and do that. And then to, to put it on the business side, there was, um, and this is a to shout out to my team at RAF. They actually did these interviews before I even got there, but they were interviewing um people for a data product and there was a person uh, it's rather than going down to the office and observing them the person was modeling what they do on a daily basis on the camera so we learned about uh without getting into specifics we learned about all sorts of inefficiencies and how they were operating on a daily basis that i'm not sure they would have volunteered had we been there in person just as an observer so there's a certain way in which these cameras are more intimate uh, than in-person encounters uh, we risk more because there's a sense of safety behind the camera. Um, and so there's things that are lost, uh, eye contact, uh, body language. Um, but that's also present in a different way on camera. And, uh, I have learned a whole new level of observation and to maximize what the camera does versus what in-person, um, ethnography does.
1: That's amazing. And, and, I'm sure you're familiar, or there's a very good chance you've heard the Swiffer story, um, where um, what, what Procter and Gamble, I think it was, they sent maybe a dozen ethnographers out to watch people mop their floors, and because they were that. because they were there to see it, they realized that the problem's not mopping the floor; it's cleaning all the gear afterwards. You know, you, 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 you and so the the how do we clean a mop that's great at picking up dirt? right? And how do we make, so, well, we have the disposable mop head and that was like the big insight, but that's a big ask, you know, getting on the phone and saying, are, are you home? Can I come watch you mop? That's a right. big
0: ask. It
1: Whereas is. saying, could you just set up a tripod to record what the process is like? That's a very different thing. It's less can intrusive. Can you show me
2: how you map? Yeah, and, uh, yeah. Uh, and you can here, do it. You could home. do it
1: worldwide. You don't have to do it just in Cincinnati or where you happen to be stationed.
2: Yes, and and, and you're thinking along the lines that I'm thinking is that, and, and look, it's uh, we have got undergone a collective trauma, and um, one of the things I keep saying about uh, Zoom research, you, every day you go online to see another article about how Zoom is overwhelmingly fatiguing. And I keep pointing out that yes, Zoom has been fatiguing. But two things: one is you cannot separate Zoom from the reason that we're having to use Zoom, and the fact that many of us are doing it under duress and don't like doing it. That's fatiguing by itself, right? Mm-hmm. Right there. Um, and then number two, we don't have a lot of data on what in-person meetings do to people.
1: <laughs> Good point. Yeah, just because one thing's think- not perfect doesn't mean it's worse than the other.
2: I think there's certain people, and for me, without getting into my personal issues or anything like that, there's certain things about being in my home that are better for me than uh, uh, being in person that reduce my stress. So, uh, and I think that, um, and like I said, you know, there's, um, uh, I I speak to teachers a lot because I have been a teacher my whole life, um, professor, and I've even taught high school, middle school, preschool. Uh, arts classes because I ran an arts program for a while too, and um, I have a lot of friends that are teachers. and uh, And I, I spoke to one person who's a preschool teacher and says, you know, just insisted that it's very hard to engage children on uh, on camera. Uh, and you know, you're working with high school students, middle school students, college students, graduate students is different. Um, and I agree. It's different. She says, you know, and I'm really working hard for the back of the room. I said, well, two things I'd like to share with you is that one um, when I teach actors, because I taught acting in another life um, who are coming from camera to stage, they have to deliver much more energy and, and become much bigger. So you mm. actually have to do less on camera than you have to do in person. Mm. Uh, and and number two, um, I would say that, everybody at the children's television workshop would disagree with you that you cannot reach the preschool school set through the camera. Yeah. So what it is, is it's a different set of skills
0: mm-hmm.
2: that it is unfair that you're being forced to evolve under duress, Yeah. but there's nothing inherent to the form that is more fatiguing. What is more fatiguing is learning a new set of skills.
0: Yeah. There's and, yeah. and,
2: and under duress, not like, hey, I'd like to learn how to engage preschoolers on camera, but I have to do it when I'm worried about my health, the health of my family, the health of my children and my students. And I don't know what's happening in my country <laughs>
1: right? or, to, right? or to my economic future.
2: Or my economic future. Exactly. And, you know, so, and then of course, when you're teaching the public school system, the whole political thing that was going on behind this is in New York, right? There was a lot of things going on in New York about the school closings and a lot of dissent and, and, um, and so, um, yeah, so I think that these uh, you know, like, like Mark Twain's death, (laughs) the um, you know, uh, announcing of, the fatigue of zooming is a little premature and exaggerated um, because we just don't have enough information. Um, are there things, yeah, you know, we're sitting, I'm right now sitting slightly hunched over. Cause I'm not in my studio office. Um, <laughs> right. You know, we have to remind ourselves to get up and take breaks, but we should have been doing that in person too, to be honest. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, how many times have there been in-person meetings that just go on way too long and your brain just fries. Right. So um I do think, uh, you know, but but I'm open to the fact that there's something in particular about this this way of interacting that's uh, more taxing or that we pay a psychological penalty for or yeah. a physical penalty for. I'm open to it.
1: Well, also, it's, it, it is, it's a study in change, right? I mean, if, if we suddenly said we're going to start driving on the opposite side of the road there's no real reason why one is better than the other, but can you imagine the cognitive load that would suddenly be imposed? And here we are doing every, all of our, bit. I mean, if you're fortunate enough to be in a white collar line of work, we're doing things in a completely different way. We haven't had time to optimize it. You know, the example of the teacher, you know, you raise the idea that you could have, um, you know, a TV show be very informative. Well, okay, well, what's going to happen to my job then if all the kids are watching TV? Well, your job's going to change, obviously, but how many times have you thought to yourself as a teacher, if only had more time to individually talk to the kids, right? But you don't have time to optimize around the potential advantages. You're just like, I'm hoping this will be over. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yes. I just want everything back to caress. normal. And it's not something that you uh, ever chose to do that you wanted to do or you know in my case I I love technology and I love computers so that this is just you know ooh more tools right you know yeah. so um so that's why I keep I, I don't want to offend anybody who's struggling and I sure. certainly and I I doubt that the person that I'm referring to would be listening to this right now but if she wa- were, I would say you absolutely should feel frustrated and fatigued and you were put in a horrible situation and it's something that you should never have had to endure, but it was what it was. Uh, but to then say this is impossible in all situations and it should never be done is, is a different thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and and that there are maybe preschool teachers who would choose to teach this way and be very good at it. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I don't want to like, you know, have the, it would be like, you know, um, if every time um, you went to Disney world, you, you had to go while you had chicken packs, you would associate Disney world with horrible <laughs> feelings, right? Yeah, that's yeah. that's basically, so no matter how good Disney world is, it's just, you know, you are associating being at Disney world with being itchy and having a fever and being fatigued and not being able to enjoy anything. Right. Yeah, so yeah. Um, that, that, that's what's going on here is we have all of these tools that have always been here, the potential to be, these kinds of remote collaborators have always been here. Um, And and we did not exploit it because we fear change. Mm -hmm. And then the change was forced. And I think, I hope that 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 change is now going to be extensible and lasting. I hope that it's not like the situation that I was talking about when you don't do research and you force things, you create more problems, that we are now always forever going to associate this form of working with a um, very stressful time of crisis. I don't think that that's there. there's that potential because there's those people who just say, I never wanna Zoom again, right? Um, but I think the overwhelming majority of the research is showing that most of us have have learned the benefits of, of collaborating this way. Um, but you know, in 1998, I was given a cell phone and a laptop and I was uh, remote consulting um, then. Um, and uh, nobody cared because I got everything in by email very quickly, and I was doing mostly writing and documentation and testing and, and, and validating results, um, and, it, and it was fine. Um, but I'll tell you the really funny thing was that when the IT guy gave me my cell phone and my laptop, I had this way of spinning things forward and not realizing like my environment. I just assumed that I would be able to get onto the internet with my cell phone on the train. Mm. And I said that and he laughed at me. He's like, that's ridiculous. Hey, she thinks that you're going to be able to get on your laptop on the train (laughs) using a cell phone.
1: Someday.
2: (laughs) And I was like, who's laughing now, buddy. Right. (laughs) uh, But you know, I assumed that, you know, we were by then dial up modem, you know, like that I would be able to use my cell phone to get Mm -hmm. on the internet on the train when I was commuting. Uh, And so uh, then, you know, but, but that was just because I spent a lot of time by myself as a kid imagining things, right? You know, mm-hmm. so like, uh, so like I, didn't, I never tested it against the world. Uh, but those people <laughs> who were testing it against the, the world, like kind of didn't see what was coming, right? Um, right. And so I've, no, I've wondered about this for a long time. Like, Why are we asking people to act like they're still working in factories, logging in and logging out and going and having to be physically monitored and, and watched? Um, what, wh- why are we doing that? The nature of work has changed from the industrial revolution prior to the pandemic. So wh- why have we been doing this? Um, and I'm so, I'm so grateful uh, that, um, that uh, this has happened, not grateful for the suffering that we are still undergoing because of that, but for the unintended secondary effects sure, sure. Of, of, of that, which is that we've discovered that the, this is possible, it's enabled, and that it actually is maybe preferable, and that like when women went to back to work, like went to work.
1: Mm, um, World War Two.
2: Yeah, like yeah. when women went to work, it shouldn't be compelled, but now it's an option, and 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 um and that you know it's not going to change everything. What what is what is the saying? What is uh? option waste a crisis
1: or something like that.
2: No, uh, what what is optional will soon become compulsory.
1: <laughs> mm. I'm not
2: saying that we should be compulsorily working um, remotely or hybrid, but that it it should be allowed to be out there on the market as a choice and let and let the market bear out what it will. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of people are gonna be choosing hybrid and remote. and I, I get calls every day from recruiters, Hey, Jen, I got another job. You're so helpful in helping us find placements. Do you have any other, you know, UX people? And I say, hey, uh, they have, you know, they're, it's going to start remote, but they're going to have to sit in Charlotte or they're going to have to sit in Atlanta or they're going to have to sit in New York. And I said, you know, I really, I have a stable of about twenty UXers that I talk to on a regular basis. I don't know one person that that wants to go sit in person somewhere. To
1: so have to they move, to, yeah.
2: They all want to work remote, so. I'm not saying that's not, that's not a scientific example. Uh, That's just my anecdotal experience. And perhaps I attract the kinds of people who are like me personally. Um, uh, But it just seems to me that, yeah, the benefits uh, of being in your home or, or being uh, in a place of your choosing um, because I work in a co-working space sometimes too. I'm not always home. I have an office outside my home. Um, So uh, it's it's just going to be too, too good for too many people for it to not stay
1: well you also mentioned women in the workforce and and of course one of the challenges that any couple has is i got a job in new york great well i'm we we the whole family's living in los angeles right now you can't I, my job but now you can have that job in new york you just don't need to move it makes such oh, yeah. such an enormous difference to you know cuz it's often the 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 one in, the one in the couple that has the lower income that's going to stay home, and it creates this self-fulfilling prophecy where you can't get ahead, and so you wind up being, you know, out of a job permanently because of the moves. And and here's this great opportunity to avoid that.
2: Uh, my career benefited tremendously. I'm employed in a leadership position by a company based in Bangalore. You know, so right. I mean, that that is um, definitely um, something, and I have benefited and accelerated because of that. And again. Uh, this is specific to me, Uh, the certain circumstances that I've been in in my life have conspired for this to be a positive thing for me. And um, I imagine though, that I'm not in in a small, a small minority of people in that. Um, And so, um, but I wanted to mention one other thing um, about remote collaboration with sticky notes, virtually number one, it saves trees, but number two, the anonymity of it is tremendous. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Like when you're working with sticky notes in a place everybody's got their eye on the corner like this to see, Hey, what's my boss putting it on? Like, can I put a sticky, can I put a dot on his and can he see that I'm putting a dot on his, um, you know, or I know that's Jack's handwriting. So I'm going to, I'm going to vote that down. Cause Jack was a total. He ate the what? last
0: donut.
2: Yeah. 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 So, um, and now, uh, as you know, from the tool that we, when we were doing it, you can be, uh, sometimes you can figure it out. Um, but we have that tool where everybody's like a, an animal. Hi, I'm the visiting narwhal. And we don't know who the visiting narwhal is unless people announce it. And they do. Um, but for the most part, it's very hard to figure out who's putting what and there's no handwriting. Yeah. So unless you predetermine and, and say, this person is going to be using this font and these sticky colors. And there's reasons you might do that in certain situations, but um, you know, that anonymity um, has been, amazing. I I would say I'm never going back. In fact, I work, um, big plug in case it's ever heard, Loom in Fort Mill, awesome co working space and art gallery performance space combined. So you can see why I'm there. Um, it's amazing. Uh, at Loom, we have a huge conference room and there's a big screen TV in there. And I actually bring people in there to do uh, design thinking exercises. And we're still using the digital tools that we were using during remote because it's just superior. And finally, When you put 25 insights on the board and you want to do another exercise with them, dupe, and then put somebody over there. And now you have a dupe of those 25 insights and it's instantaneous. And that has accelerated the design thinking problem. When people saying, I can't wait to go back to regular stickies. I say, my goodness, that, that would be to me like going back to walking after I've been on a a Vespa. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) Um, It's, it's much slower. There's, there's benefits to being slower. Um, there's benefits to everything, but I, I have, I never want to go back. So
1: yeah. also um, it puts everybody on a level playing field. You, we're all the same height online. Right. So if I don't have to jockey with the giants to get to the whiteboard um, if the meetings run, well, everybody gets the, uh, a good amount of airtime. You know, I love the little hand raise, your arm's not going to get tired. You just, I have something to say and if if the person running the meeting's any good they're going to get to you. So you can relax. Yeah. You don't have to be like oh oh oh, you know. So I I think the, there's a lot of uh equity that can come from from doing things online as well.
2: I think so too. I have noted that myself. There's a lot of reasons why people with various disabilities or people who are caretakers for people with disabilities being able to work from home in these uh, in these environments are they benefit people? I know somebody with a really really debilitating Crohn's disease, and being home near their own bathroom is has been a game changer. Sure, like yeah. their professional life has improved. 5, we all have 000. a
1: private bathroom now. It's like we all got a, a yeah. promotion. Yeah.
2: And if you are a caretaker, you know, I mean, there are ways they've, they've done significant research in which people who are primary caretakers really suffered. Um, but there are also ways in which they they benefit, you know, when you have, uh, somebody with special needs in your home, being able to take five or 10 minutes to check on them or help them get a need met and come right back to work is just indispensable. Um, so I, uh, I think that, um, it, there's a lot of ways in which equity has been created. Now, there are ways in which pe- people with certain kinds of disabilities have been disadvantaged by this change, too. Yeah. And I don't want to overlook that. Um, but, you know, all this is to say to declare a winner or loser in the hybrid remote work wars, you know, uh, it's way too premature. It's going to be very, uh, I keep saying, I keep looking forward to how we look back and theorize and analyze and learn from this time Mm -hmm. uh, five, 10 years from now.
1: So this has been incredible. I'm very grateful for you sharing your thoughts. I have a final question. Um, You wrote, I love it when I get to quote the guests, because this really sums things up nicely. Empathizing and studying systems is infectious. It doesn't stop at the project level it begins to create dissatisfaction with all dysfunctional systems. Well said. So with a UX lens on the world, you must sometimes shake your head. Um, a classic UX fail is the door that looks like you should pull it, but it's marked push. Do you have any UX pet peeves?
2: Oh, my gosh. Um, oh, my gosh. Uh,
0: <laughs>
2: so many, so many, um, I, I so many. Uh, I, I can now I'm under pressure to think of one in particular, but there's, I do look, I, I have a tendency to just to enter. And I think this is why I became such uh, you know, I just fell into UX before people were even calling it that because um, it's an annoying feature I have of coming in. And it's probably there's some neuroses behind it, of, but just finding the inadequacy of everything that's going on and w- wondering why it's not better. Mm -hmm. um but uh okay so um application systems like if applying for a job Mm -hmm. or applying for a position at a university uh the redundancy and the inefficiency and the actual um it conspires to actually eliminating the best candidates Mm -hmm. for those positions uh drives me absolutely nuts to have to upload a long cv and then duplicate all of that information across fields again in an employment history and refer back to the document that you've just uploaded to in order to do that has practically you know when i was applying for university positions it's practically caused a a psychotic split for me it was just infuriating um and um And so, and I think that in fields that are more competitive than academia are, there's not a lot of jobs in academia, so we have to sort of swallow and put up with it, but in more competitive fields where there's more jobs than there are people, that gets improved miraculously, right? Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) Right, so uh, yes. So, so, you know, you just say, they said, well, did you fill out our portal yet? And I I haven't had time. Well, we'll do that for you, right? Like (laughs) it becomes a completely, a completely different game. But I would say that um, human resources, application systems and employee experience in general, there are awesome exceptions, uh, but onboarding processes for large companies uh, and even small companies are infuriatingly badly done. Um, And it's a, it's a, a, at a tremendous business cost right? Because mm-hmm. if I'm not onboarded correctly, I have to take time out of my actual work duties to um, fix those problems. Um, and, uh, and so I think I have not yet been to a place where the human resources, employee onboarding experiences have been addressed satisfactorily. Having said that, I have colleagues that, that that's their job and they're doing amazing things. Um, but yeah, I think that's probably my biggest pet peeve.
1: Well said. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for being on the show.
2: Thanks for having me. It's been really fun. And I'm sorry that it's not a more professional setup. (laughs) Oh no, It's
1: terrific. Thank you for all the insights. My guest today was Dr. Jennifer Pierce. Jennifer's LinkedIn profile will be in the show notes. My name is Tim Hampton, and you can reach me at tim at unusuallywellinformed.com. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll subscribe and join me for the next show with another unusually well-informed leader in business and technology.
0: Thank you for listening to the Unusually Well-Informed Podcast. The
1: opinions expressed by the host and guests on the Unusually Well-Informed Podcast are their own
0: and do not reflect that of their employer or any other affiliation.